Well, today's scripture reading is Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 and 28 and 29. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, happy second Sunday of, uh, of Advent, everyone. And, and this is the time of year, especially when the church reads from the Old Testament. Um, and typically, these are scriptures about promises of, of, of the coming Messiah, words of, of prophecy and of encouragement and of hope. But the narrative lectionary that, that we follow, um, it does things a little differently than that. So instead of getting these, these healthy, heaping doses of Isaiah, which we will get to uh, next week, and, and Matt gave us there at the Advent wreath, uh, we get things like the story of Daniel and the lion's den from last week, and, and today this prophecy from Joel. Not your typical Advent Christmas fodder, but I, I love what the narrative lectionary does here, because it forces us to understand the story of God's people, the story of the coming King and Messiah, not just one of promise and fulfillment, though that's a central theme of Scripture, but also about what it means to learn to live as God's people in exile, in darkness, and in mourning. And so Matt, last week, he, he preached about the connection between Advent and, and faithful resistance in Daniel. And, and Advent reminds us that Christianity is itself always an act of faithful resistance against uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In our passage in Joel today, it reminds us of another aspect of this faithful resistance, of, of repentance and of return to the Lord. And so Advent is actually one of the, the two um, fasting seasons in, in the church life. Typically, we think about Lent. So if you grew up Catholic, or if you grew up, especially if you grew up Lutheran, um, then, then Lent is a big time of deal. I, I like to say, you know, that uh, Good Friday is like the, uh, it's the Lutheran Easter um, you know, for that good feeling of introspection and one's own um, uh, repenting of one's own sin. That's, Lutherans love that more than any other group of Christians, I think. But, but we don't think of Advent, we think of sort of Advent as like the pre-party, the appetizers when it comes uh, to Christmas, when in fact it's also a season of reflection upon the brokenness of this world. And so maybe it is that in Lent we focus on our own sins and our own personal shortcomings. Whereas Advent invites us to look at, at the brokenness and fallenness of this world. Lent is more about the me side of sin. And I think Advent is, is more about looking at side of the, the we side of things. Because in Joel's prophecy this morning, he isn't addressing a person with this. He's speaking to a people. And he's calling them together to do three things. To rend, to return, and to receive. 
Now, before we get to that, I, I've said it before, and I will say it again and again and again and again, that for my money, like the message uh, translation of Scripture, which was done by the late great pastor theologian Eugene Peterson, um, a hero of myself. I know Matt loves him as well. I'm sure a lot of you, are if you're familiar with Eugene Peterson, to know him is to love him. And even if you don't care for the message translation of, of the Bible, I, I like it, but I know it's not everyone's uh, cup of tea, as they say. But, but for my money, even if you don't care for the message translation, his little introductions to each and every single book of the Bible are worth the price of the message itself. Because he has such a wonderful way of just distilling the message of, uh, of each, and every, uh, each and every book of Scripture. And let's just be honest. When it comes to the book of Joel— how many of us know anything about what Joel is prophesying about at all? You know, maybe in that reading you recognized the, uh, you recognized the part about the, the Spirit being poured out from, from something like, like Pentecost, but the rest of it, Joel is kind of this obscure, minor prophet. But here's what Peterson says about Joel, and I think it helps us capture its relevance for us today. He writes this, When disaster strikes, understanding of God is at risk. Unexpected illness or death, national catastrophe, social disruption, personal loss, plague or epidemic, and devastation by flood or drought. And we could say that Eugene Peterson is kind of talking about 2020. He's kind of got a 2020 thing going on right there. He was prophetic himself. He didn't even know it when he wrote those words. So saying these huge disasters, these huge crises, he says they turn men and women who haven't given God a thought in years into instant theologians, saying things like God is absent, God is angry. God is playing favorites, and I'm not the favorite. God is ineffectual. God is holding a, a grudge from a long time ago, and, and now we're paying for it. It's the task of the prophet to stand up at such moments and clarify who God is and how God acts. If the prophet is good, that is accurate and true, the disaster becomes a lever for prying people's lives loose from their sins and setting them free for God. Joel was one of the good ones. He used a current event in Israel to call his people to an immediate awareness that there wasn't a day that went by that they weren't dealing with God. That's so good. Now, the prophet Joel, he spoke into a situation where Israel had been in invaded by, by an army of locusts. And they had gone across the countryside just, just leaving devastation in their wake. And so all the crops, all of the vines uh, had just been completely obliterated. And there was nothing to do that the people could do against this invading army. You know, if a real army is coming, you, you, you can erect defenses or you can go out and, and try to attack them before they get to you. But against these locusts, they were helpless. Their weapons of war could do nothing for them. All they could do is sit and watch in horror as everything around them was devastated which meant a couple of things. It meant famine. There's no food to eat. There's no wine to drink. There's no olives to press into oil. And in addition, to add insult to injury, that means that they don't have these elements to bring with them to worship. So it was a total catastrophe at every single level of national life. And Joel spends less time focused on questions like, well, why did God do this? And some of the other prophets have a lot to say about why God did certain things like that. Or why did he allow this to happen? And the emphasis in Joel is more on that, well, now that God has got our attention, what are we going to do about it? And that's a necessary word for us today. 
You know, one of my sons asked me in his frustration just with of living life under, under COVID and all the restrictions that come from that and all the things that we tell him he can't do because, uh, because of, of COVID. He said, he said, well, why did God send the coronavirus? You know, in other words, why did he let this happen? And, you know, the honest answer is I don't really know. But the, the follow-up question to that is, well, now that God's gotten our attention with this, what are we to do about it? What's the faithful response? And Joel gives that threefold answer, to rend, to return, and receive. And so first, when God gets your attention, Joel says, rend your hearts and not your garments. This is another way of calling people to, to genuine, deep, heartfelt repentance. And Advent marks the beginning of the church year, and, and like every new beginning, it's an opportunity to start over. It's another chance for a, a fresh start. And his call here in this fresh start is, is to fasting and to weeping and to mourning. And so fasting means letting go of something that's good, but that has become an ultimate thing. A, a good thing that's maybe become an ultimate thing, or it's become something that is a stumbling block or a distraction from our attention to the state of our souls and our relationship with God. And weeping Weeping is, is, is our sorrow over the sorry state of our souls and of the world. And, and, and sorrow is actually an emotion I think that's closely tied a lot of times to anger. Right? Anger is this feeling we get when we've, we've, we've been denied something that we think we're owed. And, and, and sadness is our grief over that loss. And this year I found myself alternating between, between anger and sadness quite a bit. You know, Sadness about all of the, the lives lost and disrupted and people's livelihoods who, they've, who, who have lost their livelihood and had their whole lives disrupted and upended by the pandemic. So sad to see how far we have yet to go as a, as a society towards being just and, and equitable. So sad about people who would pervert a just cause and use it as a license for wanton lawlessness and violence and destruction. Sad about what I consider to be the utterly shambolic state of, of leadership at, at the local level, at the, at the national level, across various institutions. That makes me sad. I'm sad thinking of um, the kids who sacrificed education and, 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 and for what? And I'm sad ultimately that this thing, I think they should have brought us together as a people. These cri one crisis, multiple crises at the same time. You know, these things that, that should galvanize us and bring us together as a people instead have only served to reveal further how far apart we are. And I'm sad, I'm, I'm weeping over this because I also feel powerless, utterly powerless in the face of it. Like there's nothing that I can do about it. And so sorrow, it, it's an appropriate response to sin, to the brokenness of this world. Because when we recognize that we, like sheep, have gone astray, and that's had real, lasting, devastating impact on this world. And sorrow is also appropriate because we recognize that we ourselves have had a role to play in the state of the world being this way. So he says fast, he says weep, and then lastly, Joel says mourn. And mourning is just that further sense of grieving the things that we've lost. Lamenting those, just naming it. Right? 
And it's okay as a part of turning back to God to name the things that we've lost, that, 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 that we miss so much. You know, I mourn the loss of months and months of corporate worship. I mourn the faces that I haven't seen, even as I rejoice today that I've gotten to see a couple of faces that I haven't seen in several months. It just reminds me of those ones that I haven't seen. I mourn the loss of fellowship. I mourn the loss of, of, of chances to welcome new people to our community. I mourn the, you know, first few months of life from so many of our newest congregants here. These babies that have been born that I haven't gotten to see. And to see the joy of those parents as they bring them in. I mourn the, the last months of the lives of some of our oldest members. These are, are some of the last precious few months that we'll have with them. We've lost weddings, baptisms. We've lost milestones and markers. We've lost a lot. And it's okay to name that. And anyone who just won't let you name those things as losses, but always has to go, well, you know, it's, it's worth it. Sure, I, yeah, probably. And it's a loss. A loss is a loss. And part of turning back to God is the freedom that we get to name those things as losses in relationship to him. And there's one other thing that I, I just want to say about this call to west, uh, fasting and weeping and mourning. And that's how visceral those words are. Right? Those are not the words of a cool, detached, kind of purely intellectual faith. And oft, I think far too often the temptation, in certain strands of Protestantism at least, are, are to reduce the Christian faith to the kind of proper arrangement of doctrines in our heads. You know, as long as we have the mental furniture arranged correctly, we're good. And a kind of emotionally involved faith, like fasting and weeping and mourning, it's an embarrassment. You know, and, and I grew up Scandinavian and Presbyterian, and so, you know, those are two things that are working against me when it comes to an, an emotionally involved faith. But I think that maybe the reason that, that, that we aren't comfortable with these practices and these emotions is not because we think they're wrong or too Catholic or, or too, you know, uh, Pentecostal or even something like that. They're just strange. And our, our faith has to be visceral. The good message of Christmas is that the Word became flesh. And as Eugene Peterson said, moved into the neighborhood. And, 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 and so we have an unavoidably, inescapably visceral skin and bones, blood, sweat, flesh, and tears, faith. And that's why I think during this time of year, Advent especially, I'm such a firm believer in those rituals and those routines and those practices that we can return to again and again as a way of getting back in touch with the lived out visceral nature of our faith. So there's rending, and then there's returning to God. Twice in our passage, it says, return to the Lord. In fact, the first time, it's God saying, return to me. Actually, says that before saying anything about rending, but you know, I had to order the R's somehow. So return to me. And this rending is possible because God is a God who invites us to return to him. Because the character of the God who says return to me. And what's so wonderful about this is, is that so often we think that, you know, when someone messes up really badly, as badly as we have in our relationship with God, if we think of any of our human relationships where we feel like we've been failed or, or betrayed or wrong, we're... we're we're done with that person. 
Or we can feel that same way about the world. I can get so world-weary, just like I'm done with this. I'm done, I'm done with people. You know, uh, in this past election, I supported the sweet meteor of death. You know, I mean, that was like just the kind of sense of like, let's just end it all. Like, we've lost our chance. We failed. Human beings, we're not doing great. But God, Joel tells us, isn't like that. And this time of year is as good a time as any to to come back to him and to remember. Maybe, maybe we're remembering, recalling for the first time the character of God. Because Joel states that the reason we can return to God is because of God's, uh, God's character. And he gives what's a, basically a creedal recitation, a formulaic recitation that the ancient Israelites had about who God is. And it's still true today. What does he say about God? That God is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who God is. And it's worth pondering now, it's worth pondering in prayer today and into the future, just reflecting on these attributes of God's character. God is gracious. And in the ancient world, that, that, that was speaking of basically a, a posture of a superior to an inferior. And, and the superior taking a posture, an unexpected posture of total goodwill toward the inferior party. Now, if the relationship between a superior party and an inferior party does not describe our relationship with the God of the universe, I don't know what else does. But we can return to him because he's revealed himself to us as a God who is for us. That's what it means to say God is gracious. He's God for us. God is merciful, and the wonders of God's mercy is that God doesn't give us what we deserve. In fact, he gives us what we don't. God is slow to anger, which means that God is patient with us. And I think the patience of God is perhaps his most underappreciated attribute. I say this as an impatient person. But uh, as I was reading our Advent devotional this week, Second Peter talks about, you know, God's, the delay of, of the second coming and, and people going, you know, looking at their watches or sundials on their, you know, uh, wrists and going, where are you, God? Why, why haven't you come back? And Second Peter's reminder is that he says, this isn't, God just neglecting us. He says, God has a reason for delaying. It's, it's patience. It's so that people can turn to him. And so we can return to God because God is a patient God. And then Joel says that God is abounding in steadfast love, and that's that wonderful Hebrew word, uh, chesed, which is, is that untranslatable word. But it, it's God's covenant love. It's his loyal, his fierce, unstoppable, never giving up, always and forever love. It's God's love that will never let us go. And so this Advent, we get to return to God and not lose sight of who God is. And if God wasn't this way, if God wasn't a God who was, was, was slow to anger, uh, merciful, abounding in steadfast love and gracious, he never would have come to us in Jesus the God of Christmas is the God of Joel too. So there's rend, return, and lastly, and all too briefly, there's receive. And the promise at the end of this passage is that God will give his people, without distinction, the gift of his spirit. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so this is a, a time of year when we, we focus on, on the giving and receiving of gifts. And so I think it can be helpful for us to look for just a second at what it means to receive this gift of the Spirit from God by looking at, at how God gives and what God gives. So how does God give? He gives generously. 
says he pours out his spirit. And the language here indicates, you know, not a couple of drops here or there, the spirit just going on us. From a little eyedropper or something. No, 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 no. The language here is of a dousing, just of a pouring out of a giant bucket of the spirit on top of his people. And so when God gives, God gives to the fullest extent. He holds nothing back. That sounds like what God is going to do at Christmas. Hold nothing back, but give him, him his very self. And so as God's people, we are called to be generous givers too. And next it says that, you know, it's on all flesh. Men and women, young and old, slave and free without distinction. God gives liberally. That means that God gives freely. No favoritism. No distinction. God's gifts are are for everyone without distinction. And as the church, that's such an important message for us to never lose sight of. There was a a story in in the New York Times. I read it yesterday. It might have been in today's paper. I'm not sure. But it was written by their religion reporter, uh, who's quite good, Ruth Graham. Um, and, and she's their new religion reporter at the New York Times. And she talked about the sort of fa- the fall of Carl Lentz, who is this, I don't want to pick on him, but he's this, I wore my preachers and sneakers sweatshirt today because Carl Lentz is like one of the founding fathers of what inspired preachers and sneakers because he's a very attractive, let's just be honest, the man's a good looking man and he's a hipster pastor. He's got the big aviators and the plunging V-neck uh, shirts. And he was kind of a slow, he's Justin Bieber's pastor, if you don't know that. And Carl was a sight to behold, and he had this fall from grace, and so he was just looking at not so much his fall, but the kind of culture of the church, of Hillsong. And I don't want to pick on Carl Lentz, I don't know him, and I don't want to pick on Hillsong either. But one of the disturbing things about this story was they created a culture of celebrity at Hillsong, such that they were saying like that volunteers would be told they needed to drive people home from a, from a work party, and not invited to join the party, but they have to sort of sit in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the wings waiting or whatever. Or the staff, you know, Saturday night, I mean, this is a church in New York City, thousands of people, and the staff would have their catered dinner on Saturday nights, and, and they would call volunteers in to do the dishes afterwards. And you go, there's, there's a danger that comes when we sort of, in the church, start getting high on our own supply. Or believing our own press clippings. And I was talking to Matt about this. And I said, there but for the grace of God go I. And you know, what would it be like to have Justin Bieber think you're cool? Like you'd probably start feeling like a cooler person. And maybe, you know, all life traces back to junior high. But have you ever had like a cool friend or someone cool be nice to you at school? And that kind of changes your behavior. Um, and you start doing things to please those people. There's just this pernicious tendency to sort of, sort of sort ourselves into hierarchies that we always have to be on guard against. And, 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 and the gift of the Spirit without distinction is such a reminder of that. And I think, you know, one of the cool things about Hillsong was that celebrities went there. Like, celebrities need Jesus too. But one of the more beautiful things would have been that instead of kind of giving people the velvet rope treatment and moving them up to the VIP section at church, as if you were a celebrity and you could be rubbing elbow with and be friends with someone who has nothing, is a nobody, just a normie, random person who came to church. That's one of the gifts that we get when we get the Spirit, is we get just to be equal with one another because we've all received grace upon grace from God. And lastly, though, it's what does God give? It's his spirit. And we can say, well, what does that mean? And we know in the New Testament, it's related to the Holy Spirit, which means in some strange way, God comes to dwell in the hearts of his people, like he lived in the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple. And the point of that, according to Joel, though, 
is so that people can see a, a, receive a revelation from him. He says, you know, they're going to dream dreams and, and, and see visions. So it, it's about insight. It's about sight. So what God is giving his people then is the ability to see reality, to see the truth, to see the truth about God, uh, about themselves, about other people, about his plan and purpose for the world, about what's true, about what's good, about what's beautiful. And so one of the gifts of the Spirit that we see here in Joel is the gift of sight, the gift of seeing things clearly as they actually are. And this, this past week, I, I took my youngest son to get his new glasses fitted, and he, had, he started to hate his old glasses. He wouldn't wear them at all. And it's important that he wears them uh, for vision in his one eye in, in particular, but he hated them because the lenses had gotten scratched. And so he couldn't really see through them anymore. And so when he got his new ones, he, he loved them. And he's not taking them off, you know, every two seconds. Because now he has the gift of seeing the world as it actually is. Not blurry, not marred with scratches that get in the way. And that's what the Spirit does for us. It, it gives us God sight to the world around us. And I think one of the best uh, quotes I have about someone who's captured what this means. He says, there's no ordinary people. C.S. Lewis writes in this book, The Weight of Glory, and he's talking about the sense of, you know, you go to church and you can start maybe sometimes getting an inflated sense of yourself because you look at, well, how good am I to sort of slum it, he thought, with all of these, you know, regular kind of dowdy older people who he was with in the Church of England pews. And he says, well, he says, it's a serious thing, though, when you really see who these people are in light of God's Spirit living in them. It's a serious thing, he says, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses and to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, in some degree, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And so this Advent season, let us rend our hearts in repentance. Let us return to the God who comes to us, and let us receive the gift of his Spirit to see the world through the eyes of faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your prophets like Joel, who, who draw our attention to this world, to our need for you, to our need to return to you, to our need to cast away those things that would keep us from being with you. And so, Lord, in the midst of all the trials, travails, and struggles of this season, let us not lose that opportunity to pry ourselves loose from the things of this world and run to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.